Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skiing in Baltimore, Maryland. As always, I want to thank you uh, all for your continued support of Surety Today. Remember, you can listen to any one or all of our prior anywhere from today page on our website at wcslaw.com uh, as a podcast at podcast stitcher podbean just search for uh, surety today and on our micro site at suretytoday.net as of today we've had just over 9400 downloads of our podcast as always, we've uh, muted the line during the presentation to avoid uh, any background noise, and we will unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today, I'm going to talk about protecting the contract funds notice to the government. So here's the situation we're going to be talking about today. Pursuant to the Miller Act, the surety bonds a principal performing a federal government contract. The principal is defaulting, and the surety wants to protect the bonded contract funds in the hands of the government. The surety naturally wants to make sure that the government holds the progress payments and retainage to ensure that such funds are not paid to the principal or any other parties. The surety's purpose, of course, is to, you know, preserve the bonded contract funds for the surety's use in completing the project or paying substance suppliers or reimbursing the surety for its bond performance costs. It seems like a, a simple proposition, right? The surety can simply tell the government to hold the funds uh, or pay them over to the surety. In actuality, it's surprisingly complicated in, in light of the relative uh, formal positions of the surety and the government, the nature of the surety's rights, the existence of sovereign immunity, and various jurisdictional concepts. What, what prompted this discussion today was a, a recent case from the fall of last year on this subject uh, known as Capital Indemnity Corp versus the United States 162 uh, Federal Claims 388. In that case, the court held that um, the surety had failed to properly assert its right to equitable subrogation, uh, and as a consequence, the government was not liable for the last progress payment made to the defaulted principal. This case points out the need to review and understand the many facets of this subject, so uh, that's why I'm doing this today. First, uh, since we're dealing with the claims involving the federal government, we need to discuss the concept of sovereign immunity. So sovereign immunity is an ancient tenant from English law, which holds you know, that the sovereign is immune from claims because the sovereign is the law. The concept carried over from England to the government of the United States after our independence. Accordingly, the federal government <coughs> is immune from suit, absent a clear statement waiving sovereign immunity, together with a claim falling within the terms of the waiver. A waiver of sovereign immunity cannot be implied. Rather, the government's waiver must be unequivocally expressed in statutory text and will be strictly construed in terms of its scope in favor of the sovereign and continued immunity. 
in the absence of a waiver, the, the effect of sovereign immunity is to simply bar otherwise valid claims. You just can't, you just can't recover uh, against the government. Over time, the government began to relax its sovereign immunity protections with various uh, statutory waivers. For our purposes in, in this discussion, the relevant statutory waiver for claims against the government is found in the Tucker Act at 28 U.S.C. Section 1491. This act authorizes the Court of Federal Claims and the, and the, uh, the Federal Circuit Appellate Court to render a judgment upon any claim against the United States founded either upon the Constitution or any act of Congress or any regulation of an executive department or upon any express or implied contract with the United States. The Tucker Act, however, is only a jurisdictional statute. It does not create any substantive right uh, enforceable against the United States for money damages. The act merely confers jurisdiction and, and waives immunity whenever the substantive right otherwise exists. Therefore, a surety seeking to assert a claim against the government under the Tucker Act must identify and plead, one, an independent contractual relationship, two, a constitutional provision, three, a federal statute, or four, uh, an executive agency regulation that provides a substantive right uh, to money damages in favor of the surety against the government. The burden of establishing jurisdiction under the Tucker Act will, will fall upon the surety. In the vast majority of cases, there's, there's no constitutional provision or federal statute or executive agency regulation that provides a substantive right to money damages to a surety against the federal government. The familiar Miller Act merely requires the contractor to provide the bonds. It does not grant a right to the surety against the government. So this leaves the, you know, the express or implied contract with the United States, uh, quote unquote, as grounds for jurisdiction under the Tucker Act. To, to establish jurisdiction pursuant to the act um, that is based on an express contract, essentially a contract must be between the surety and the government and entitle the surety to money damages in the event of the government's breach of the contract. This requirement can typically be met when the surety enters into a takeover agreement with the government and would only apply to the rights arising after the effective date of the agreement. However, in the absence of a takeover agreement or for acts uh, occurring prior to its entry, the case law is fairly well established that the surety's performance and payment bonds are not considered to be contracts with the federal government. The court in Ransom versus U.S. observed that the government does not sign the bonds, nor is there any language in the terms of the Miller Act bonds themselves that even purports to obligate the government to anything. While it is well settled that a surety bond creates a three-party relationship in which the surety becomes liable for the principal's debt or duty to the third-party obligee, a third-party status does not create privity of contract with the government. To establish jurisdiction based on an implied contract, uh, the same requirements of an express contract must exist, uh, although there won't be uh, an executed writing. It must be proven that there was a meeting of the minds, which is inferred as a fact from the conduct of the parties showing in the light of the surrounding circumstances their tacit agreement. The government abhors contracts that are not in writing, so implied contracts are exceedingly rare and difficult to prove. Addressing the issue of implied contracts for sureties, the Ransom Court noted that the requirement that bonds be provided does not create an implied contract. The court stated that the fact that the government requires contractors to provide bonds cannot be construed as an objective manifestation that the government intended to undertake obligations to the surety. 
However, all is not lost. If a surety is unable to rely on the existence of an express or implied contract as the jurisdictional basis for a claim against the government, the surety may be able to invoke the doctrine of equitable subrogation to step into the shoes of the contractor for the purpose of satisfying the jurisdictional requirements of the Tucker Act. Courts have uniformly agreed that it is settled law that the Tucker Act, coupled with the doctrine of equitable subrogation, provides subject matter jurisdiction to the court to determine a surety's claim against the government stemming from the bonded contract fund. In the case of Nelson Construction, the court noted that pursuant to the doctrine of equitable subrogation, the surety has standing to sue the government because the government is clearly the primary beneficiary of the surety's obligation, and it would be inequitable to allow it to retain monies which it has previously agreed to pay for work done. Since equitable subrogation is the key to the Tucker Act jurisdiction for the surety, let's um, explore subrogation next. So subrogation, over 120 years ago, the, the Supreme Court observed that it was elementary that a surety was entitled to assert the equitable doctrine of subrogation, and that was the Prairie State Bank case. As the name suggests, the surety's right to subrogation is equitable in origin and implementation and relates back to the date when the surety bonds are first issued. Equitable subrogation as a creature of equity is enforced solely for the purpose of accomplishing the ends of substantial justice. It arises by operation of law and is independent of any contractual relations between the parties. The fundamental equity in permitting the surety to assert its subrogation rights is that a surety is a party that is secondarily liable for an obligation not primarily liable, and the surety should not, in fairness, suffer a loss that was caused by other parties. Subrogation is a rule that the law adopts to compel the eventual satisfaction of an obligation by the one who ought to pay it. Depending on the circumstances, as a result of the operation of subrogation, the surety can step into the shoes of various parties, including the obligee, uh, the principal and its subcontractors and suppliers, and is entitled to all of the rights uh, relating to the construction contract. For purposes of Tucker Act jurisdiction, the Federal Circuit has explained that an equitable subrogation claim is based on the theory that the triggering of a surety's bond obligation gives rise to an implied assignment of rights by operation of law, whereby the surety is subrogated to the principal's property rights in the contract balance. This in turn satisfies the requirement of jurisdiction under the Tucker Act. Of course, for the right of equitable subrogation to arise, the surety must uh, be entitled to subrogation. Therefore, it must perform uh, its bond obligations uh, to remedy the principal's default or satisfy unpaid sales and suppliers. However, there's an important limitation on the assertion of the surety's right of equitable subrogation under the Tucker Act. The surety must provide notice of its rights to the government. In Hanover Insurance versus the U.S., the court stated that the surety's rights to equitable subrogation do not arise vis-a-vis -vis the government unless the surety notifies the government of the principal's default. The law in this regard is succinctly summarized by the Federal Circuit's decision in Fireman's Fund Insurance versus U.S. The government as obligee owes no equitable duty to a surety like Fireman's Fund unless the surety notifies the government that the principal has defaulted under the bond. Notice by the surety is essential before any governmental duty exists. 
So notice is the key to the existence of a legally enforceable duty between the government and surety. Once notice is provided, the government must take reasonable steps to determine for itself um, that the contractor had the capacity and intention to complete the job. After notice, the government becomes a stakeholder with respect to the bonded contract funds and has a duty to act with reasoned discretion to protect the interests of the surety. Thus, the surety's right to recover improper payments as a principal can only arise as the payments made after the obligee received notice of the principal's default. The courts have recognized that contractors, of course, rely upon you know, the contract proceeds administered through the progress payments to properly finance the bonded contracts. Thus, the government has no legal obligation to suspend a progress payment merely upon the unsupported request of a contractor's surety. However, when a surety has informed the government that the contractor is in default, the government has an obligation to take reasonable steps to determine for itself that the contractor had the capacity and intention to complete the job. Under this duty, the government must act with reasoned discretion. It is only when the surety may be called upon to perform, that is, only when it may become a party to the bonded contract, that the government owes it any duty. The surety knows best when this may occur. Consequently, only notice by the surety triggers the government's equitable duty. Of course, even if proper and timely notice is provided, the government is not obligated in all circumstances to put the surety's interest over its own. To the contrary, courts have recognized that during the performance of a contract, the government has an important interest in the timely and efficient completion of the contract work and is far from being simply a stakeholder. Where the government representative is notified of the contractor's non-payment of obligations during the performance of the contract, the representative is faced with the task of balancing the government's interest in proceeding with the contract against possible harm to the surety. Numerous cases have recognized generally that contracting officers' discretion in performing this weighing of the interests and in deciding whether to withhold uh, progress payments is necessarily broad. Given the, the necessity and the importance of, of the notice, as we've just been discussing, we'll now um, focus on various issues relating to notice. One issue that, that arises with respect to the notice is whether a surety's notice must refer to an actual default, i.e. one which has already transpired, or whether the notice can merely inform the government that a default is probable or imminent. Some of the cases appear to require that the surety provide notice that the contractor has in fact defaulted already. Uh, other cases seem to waver on the distinction between actual or potential default, while still others state that notice of a mere danger of default can be sufficient. In Insurance Company of the West versus US, the court analyzed and discussed the issue uh, in depth and concluded that notice of potential default is sufficient. The ICW court cited to Hartford Fire Insurance Company of US, wherein the court stated that the government's equitable duty to exercise reasonable discretion in administering contract funds arises when the surety notifies the government that the contractor has defaulted quote, or is in danger of defaulting under the bond, unquote. In Capital Indemnity Corp. U.S., the court phrased the notice requirement as, a, quote, a payment bond surety must notify the government that the contractor is or is close to being in default, unquote. And later, the court stated the surety must explicitly notify the government of the default or threatened default. 
In Ransom v. U.S., the court observed that the surety can attempt to recover progress payments or the final payment when it notifies the government that its principal is in default or is about to go into default. So you've got you've got uh, cases going kind of all over the place, but there's certainly um, a lot of cases to suggest that the surety can give notice of an impending default and that, that will satisfy the requirements. The next issue is, does the government's knowledge of unpaid subcontractors and suppliers, or even notice from the unpaid sub subcontractors and suppliers, uh, suffice to satisfy the surety's obligation to provide notice? In the recent capital indemnity case, the government was aware of and actually informed the surety that it would be receiving payment bond claims from the principal's unpaid subcontractors. The surety argued that such knowledge satisfied the notice requirement. The court stated that it need not beat around the bush on this alleged ground for equitable subrogation and said, knowledge of a contractor's failure to make subcontractor payments alone does not constitute adequate notice to establish a claim for equitable subrogation. In the fireman's fund case, a contractor had been failing to pay its subcontractors and suppliers for several months, leading those subs and suppliers themselves to complain directly to the contracting officer. During this time, however, the contracting officer still issued several payments to the contractor. It was not until after the contractor actually abandoned the contract that the surety sent a letter notifying the government uh, of the default. In its suit against the government, the surety argued that the contracting officer should not have dispersed the payments to the, co to the contractor during the period of time the contractor had not been paying subs and suppliers. The court said, the government as obligee owes no equitable duty to a surety like Fireman's Fund unless the surety notifies the government that the principal has defaulted under the bond. The court continued, we see no reason to impose on the government a duty toward the surety whenever a subcontractor or supplier complains of late or non-payment by the contractor. Only the contract should limit the government's flexibility in resolving payment disputes so minor and perhaps so inevitable that the surety itself doesn't consider the contractor's role in them a potential default under the bond. Only when the surety may be called upon to perform, that is only when it may become a party to the bonded contract, should the government owe it any duty. The surety knows best when this may occur. Consequently, only notice by the surety triggers the government's equitable duty. The fireman's court therefore held that it was not improper for the contracting officer to have dispersed the, the progress payments. The thrust of the court's reasoning is that for a notice of default to trigger the government's stakeholder duty, the notice must be made by the surety. The government owes no duty to consider the interests of the surety until the surety itself expresses its own concern regarding the contractor's ability to complete performance and pay all subs and suppliers. More broadly than just you know, the unpaid subs and suppliers, it is the government's knowledge that the principal is in default enough to satisfy the notice requirement? And the answer is generally no. In the recent uh, capital indemnity case, the government was aware of and informed capital uh, of its principal's various performance issues and the fact that it missed the contract deadline. The surety argued that this was sufficient knowledge, but the government and the court characterized the circumstances as the government working with the principal, quote unquote, to avoid default and to complete the contract. Moreover, the fact that capital did not take any action at the, at the time to acknowledge its potential liability as a surety and made no objections to the progress payments demonstrated to the court that capital itself did not believe a default had occurred. 
Courts have noted that because the surety may be may decide that its interests are best served by continuing to have payments sent directly to the principal contractor, constructive notice that a contractor has defaulted and even that the surety has taken over performance of the contract is insufficient uh, standing alone to, to trigger the government's subrogation duty. In Westchester Fire v. U.S., the surety did not notify the government to withhold progress payments. Surety argued that the government was aware that the contractor's performance was deficient at the time that it issued the final progress payment. The court held that this was not enough to meet the notice requirements stating, quote, the progress payment issue falls squarely under the controlling case law. Because the surety did not give notice to the government, contractors default on the surety bonds and did not request the, the, that the last progress payments be made, it failed to trigger the government's equitable duty with reason to, to act with reason discretion toward it. Court continued, it is not the government's responsibility to divine the surety's thinking process or to act as a nanny for the surety and ask it whether under the circumstances of a given contract, it would like the government to withhold progress payments to the contractor. In Westchester, the surety was fully apprised of the contractor's performance record and the danger of its default on the contract because it was copied on the government's warning notices to the principal. The court stated that it was the surety's responsibility to decide for itself what it wanted to do, if anything, with the information it received from the government. It chose to do nothing, and it was not the government's prerogative or duty to substitute its judgment for the surety's. In American Insurance Company v. United States, the uh, despite the fact that the government was fully aware of the principal's failure to perform and the fact that the surety was providing funding and had assumed the de facto managerial control over the project, the surety's right to equitable subrogation was held to never have attached because the surety failed to provide notification to the government. So overall, based on the on the case law, the surety, and, and there are cases out there where, you know, the, the the surety has done far less or, or the government has, you know, had, had a lot of knowledge, but uh, the surety should take the position that the government's independent knowledge of contractor default will not satisfy the surety's requirement of providing notice. So let's look at what the standard is. As the Court of Claims stated in Argonaut Insurance Company v. U.S., there is a significant difference between the government's role before and after completion of performance on a contract. During performance, the government has a vital interest in the timely and efficient completion of the work. The government must have broad flexibility and discretion to overcome various unforeseen circumstances which may hinder performance of the work. For these reasons, the government incorporates into its contracts broad rights which permit the procurement officials to exercise discretion. With respect to the surety, however, this discretion and flexibility is limited by its duty to exercise its discretion responsibly and to consider the surety's interest in conjunction with other problems encountered in the administration of the contract. Where the government is entitled to exercise its discretion, a surety has a heavy burden in showing that the determination made by the government was either arbitrary and capricious or in bad faith or an abuse of discretion. A standard of proof to be applied in a case where an arbitrary and capricious disregard of the surety's interests and an abuse of discretion are charged must be and is high. The vast majority of cases, um, in the vast majority of cases, the surety will, will not be trying to establish deliberate or fraudulent conduct, but rather will focus on demonstrating abuse of discretion. 
where performance is complete and the government has already accepted the performance, it is bound by the traditional duty of reasonableness and not accorded the greater discretion it otherwise would have been permitted had the contractor not completed. Thus, after performance, the government's interest in retaining funds to ensure contract completion disappears and the contractor's and the surety's interest in the retained funds becomes paramount. So once the government has the, the duty to exercise reason discretion, how can the surety evaluate and determine if the government is exercising its duty properly? Well, the court in Balboa provided a list of factors that have been considered by the Court of Claims and other courts to be important in determining whether the government has exercised reasonable discretion in distributing um, funds. Those factors are, one, attempts by the government after notification by the surety to determine that the contractor had the capacity and intent to complete the job. Two, percentage of contract performance completed at the time of notification by the surety. Three, efforts of the government to determine progress made on the contract after notice by the surety. Four, whether the contract was subsequently completed by the contractor. While not conclusive, it can be relevant to show the reasonableness of the contracting officer's determination of the progress. Five, whether the payments to the contractor subsequently reach the subcontractors and material and materialment. This goes to the equitable obligation of the government to subcontractors and others to see that they will be paid. Also, because the surety is liable to the subcontractors, any money that reaches them furthers the, object, the objectives of the surety as well as those of the government. Six, whether the government contracting agency had notice of problems with the contractor's performance previous to the surety's notification of default to the government. Seven, whether the government's actions violated one of its own statutes or regulations. Eight, finally eight, whether um, evidence that the contract could or could not be completed as quickly or cheaply by a successor contractor. So these factors are, are used to help guide the courts in determining whether what the government did uh, once it received the notice with respect to the contract funds was uh, sufficient or not, uh, whether it was there, it was there an abuse of discretion or not. So there are um, other issues here. One is occasionally the issue has been raised as to whether the surety's equitable subrogation rights uh, apply only to retainage or do they extend the progress payments as well. In uh, National Surety Corp v. U.S., the court addressed the contention by the government to the effect that in suits by Miller Act surety, the surety's rights to contract funds uh, upon default of its contractor principal are limited to the percent retainage withheld by the government as opposed to the full amount of the progress payment. The district court uh, rejected that approach and explained, while it is true that many of the cases have dealt solely with retainage, it is apparent that this stems from the fact that retainage is, in many instances, all that is left to battle over when the surety discovers that, uh, that there's been a default. It's clear from a review of the cases that the courts make no distinction between earned progress payments and retained percentages in determining the surety's equitable rights upon the contractor's default. The court stated, the surety's rights apply to the total fund, no matter what it is called, which remains in the hands of the United States at the time notice of default under its bond is established. Thus, there's no valid distinction between money held by the government, which is retainage, and a progress payment. In either case, the total fund remaining in the government's possession, to the extent the surety has obligations arising on the contract, is available to the surety. The question is, and in, in, in that language in that case raises this question, the question is sometimes raised as to whether 
the equitable subrogation uh, rights of the surety are only enforceable when the government is still in possession of the contract funds. In other words, can the surety recover from the government for funds that the government already paid to the principal? The answer is yes, but once the government's duty to use its reason discretion in protecting the bonded contract funds has been raised by the surety's timely and proper assertion notice of its equitable subrogation rights, if the government abuses that discretion and releases funds to the principal, the government is liable to the surety for the sums released. In Balboa, the Federal Circuit ruled, we hold that both the claims court and this court have jurisdiction to hear the claim of a Miller Act surety against the United States for funds allegedly improperly dispersed to a contractor. In Insurance Company of the West, the court observed, under the doctrine of equitable subrogation, a performing or paying surety may recover contract funds still held by the government as retainage and contract funds that were dispersed to the contractor after the surety notified the government of the contractor's default. The court in Lumberman's emphasized that, that, that notice was the prerequisite to the obligation of the government. Thus, with proper notice, the government may actually be put into the position where it, may, where it must pay twice. Once uh, originally when it paid the principal and second when it has, has to pay the surety. This is actually a point that should be expressly made to the government in the surety's notice that if the government does not properly adhere to its duty, it may be forced to pay twice. That will no doubt grab the, uh, the contracting officer's attention for sure. Another question that get ra get, gets raised is, does it matter whether the surety is claiming under its payment bond or performance bond? And the answer to that is no, the surety still has an equitable right of subrogation and therefore uh, the court has jurisdiction to consider it. Um, the, the issue can come down to what is the extent of the subrogation rights. Obviously a performance bond surety has greater rights uh, for, of subrogation than a payment bond surety, but that doesn't affect the ability uh, of the surety to assert its equitable subrogation rights. And there was an unfortunate, uh, some unfortunate language in the insurance company of the West case where the court uh, of federal claims seemed to indicate that, uh, that a payment bond surety would not have uh, the right to assert um, a claim against the government. And for about six years after that case, every time a payment bond surety filed a claim, the Department of Justice filed a motion to dismiss, citing to the, uh, the, the dicta in that insurance company of the West case. But ultimately, um, the court uh, of federal claims in National American Insurance Company, the U.S., uh, put to rest that dispute and, and made it clear that uh, payment bond uh, sureties do have rights to, to make claims. Um, against the government. So basically, uh, we're at our time here. Basically, you know, you've got to get the notice that's key. You've got to include um, uh, facts and information because the government doesn't just have to, you know, take your word. It has to, it has to exercise its discretion. So the surety wants to be sure to make a clear notice to clearly identify the contract and clearly identify all of the facts and circumstances which point to a default uh, including not, not just the default of the contract terms, but a default under the bond terms uh, or default even under the indemnity agreement. You want to be able to give the government enough information to agree with you that it should uh, withhold the contract funds. Okay, so closing up here, before I open up the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know that the next episode of Surety Today will be on Monday, May 8th, obviously at 1230. 
Uh, it's that time of year. Uh, we're getting into prime event season. The spring and the fall are all crammed with surety things to do. On April 19th, the uh, Philadelphia Surety Claims Association will hold its lunch meeting in, in Philadelphia. Our speaker from JS Held will be discussing building envelope issues. Hope to see everyone there. Uh, May 10th through the 12th, the ABA FSLC spring meeting will be held, held in Lake Tahoe, California. I think it's California, might be Nevada, on the subject uh, of the electronic payment bond desk book. I'll be attending that conference if I can determine whether it's in California or Nevada. May 22nd, uh, the 23rd annual Eastern Bond Claims Review Seminar will be held at the Fairmount Country Club in Chatham, New Jersey. WCS is a proud uh, co-sponsor of that conference, and I think Rich Pledger and others from our office will be there. Looking ahead to June, uh, June 5th, the uh, PSCA will hold its annual golf outing. And June 13th, Chicago Surety Claims will hold its golf outing. And June 21st through the 22nd, the Surety Claims Institute will hold its annual meeting in Cambridge, Maryland, our backyard. So thank you for joining me today, and uh, now I will attempt to unmute the line. I think I've unmuted the line, but I'm not getting any sounds. <laughs> so I don't know if I did or not, or if the system's working or not. We may be having technical difficulties. But be that as it may, again, thank you. And uh, if you have any questions, just shoot me an email, mstover at wcslaw.com. All right, thank you, everybody. Take thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.